Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971 that is correct <laughs> hey everybody how's it going we're live live stream chat what's happening your ben jarofsky show for tuesday april 6th a little delayed but that's fine because it's moments away and it's brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana. The Chicago Federation of Labor sponsors, as well as Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what music to listen to, what to think politically. So many questions. If you're a clueless Chicagoan, get a clue. ChicagoReader.com. Subscribe to the Chicago Reader. Also, ChicagoReader.com slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. There you can find our endless archive of Ben Jarofsky shows, over 900 episodes and counting, and bonus interviews, so much more. Also, you can become a Ben Head. Yes, if you are a fan of this program and you want to help out these two crazy people, chicagoreader.com slash Jarofsky. Become a bin head. It's a three-tiered system. You can join the alley. You okay? Everything good over there? Oh, he's thumbing through his papers. He's doing some pre-show prep, baby. <laughs> I hear pre-show uh, prep. I should turn. Hold on. Watch this guy's little technical thing. Oh, there we go. That's a technical thing we call the mute button. You can be on the alley. You can be on the avenue, or you can be living large on Benny Boulevard. It's true. ChicagoReader.com slash Jarofsky. Become a Ben head, and you get a deal on Ben Jarofsky's book. That's right. He has a book. Oh, my God. This guy's so busy. What's going on these days? Uh, It's his greatest hits covering 40 years of Chicago journalism. All right. The greatest hits, Ben Jarofsky. Go check it out. You'll get a deal. Chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. The Ben Jarofsky show starts now. It is Tuesday, April 6th. And live from my apartment and his attic, this is the Ben Jarofsky show. Remember, Ben, you're on mute. Today on the program, 
movie maker Steve Cohen. And now your host, not a movie maker. Chicago Raider columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Cancel Culture Chess Tuesday. Whoa. And here's why. Great weekend. You have a good weekend, D? Yes, I did. Got my first big bike ride of the season in. Wow. Good times. Where'd you go? uh, From the new place in Pilsen to Evanston. Holy cow. That's a long ride. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Remember last year when Dennis rode his bike all the way to the state of Wisconsin? Yeah. That was buddy. amazing. <laughs> was that during the pandemic? I can't remember. Oh, yeah, was yeah. That? It was like the beginning of June. Dude, just, I'm getting on that bike and I'm not stopping it until I'm in cheesehead country. <laughs> Guy's a freaking athlete. Lance Armstrong, they call him. And he doesn't take drugs. All right? Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, I'm, well, okay, I'm talking about the steroids that enhance your performance. Oh. Anyway, I had a very peaceful uh, weekend. Thank you for asking, D. I uh, got my second shot, my second COVID shot. And that kind of, that was Saturday, kind of just sort of flaked me out a little bit. I was like, Ooh. I don't know if it was psychological, whatever, but I just like the whole weekend, I was kind of chill. I watched a great basketball game, a college game, Gonzaga beats UCLA. And then I watched a not so very good college game. Baylor stomps Gonzaga. Is it Gonzaga or Gonzaga? You know, that's a great question. Uh, My wife was calling it Garkinsall. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know it's not that. (laughs) The Zags. For 10 trivia points, what town are they from? Gonzaga? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was my answer. Gonzaga, the town of Gonzaga. <gasps> yes. Gonzaga, Illinois, uh, which is downstate, just near Darren Bailey's district. No, I believe they're from Spokane, Washington. Don't quote me. Oh. Anyway, where was I? I was on a tangent. Oh, yes. I spent most of my weekend following the fascinating coast to coast contest of cancel culture, pitting Democrats versus Republicans. It's like a chess game. Republicans move here, Dems move there, Republicans move here, Dems move there. They take the pawn, they take the king, they take the rook. To review, cancel culture is when lefties push MAGA, punish MAGA, excuse me, for MAGA having exercised their First Amendment protector right to say whatever they want, no matter who they offend. Well, that's how MAGA defines cancel culture. Lefties, people like me, Define it by saying, hey, man, natural consequences. For instance, if you walk outside and it's 10 degrees below zero and you're not wearing a coat, guess what? You're going to get cold. So don't complain when you get cold. There's a natural consequence for things you do. So if you go out of your way to gratuitously offend me with your offensive remarks, don't complain if I protest. Fair enough, right? No. MAGA wants the right to offend without consequences. Furthermore, they want the right to flip the switch and cancel your culture if you offend them, which is why MAGA defends the rights of bakers in Indiana not to sell wedding cakes to gay people getting married. They're canceling the gay people's culture because it offends them. Poor babies, but they don't want you to cancel their culture if they offend you. Got that? Anyway, 
Like I said, it was cancel culture chess all weekend long. And folks, I was sitting there in my COVID shot induced high watching it. But by the way, I don't even know if I had a, an induced high from the COVID. I should put that out there because it'd be like literally all our listeners go, maybe I shouldn't get the shot. Ben was high. Man, what are you it. doing here? Come on. <laughs> I could have just been high from life, ladies and gentlemen. But I don't know. But for some reason, I was out of it all weekend. Well, yeah, shout out to Radio that. Doogie on the live stream chat. He says uh, he's heard that the second shot wipes everyone out. It does, Radio Doogie. Thank you for, oh, my God. I thought it was just me. I feel validated. Vindicate. D, all I did what Saturday was just like lie there. Oh, God, I can't get up, man. Oh, man. So I would like every now and then watch a, a YouTube video of Johnny Carson. <laughs> when in doubt, go. I know what I'll do. I'll watch some, some old Tonight Show clips. I have seen Rodney Dangerfield. There's this one of Rodney Dangerfield on the Johnny Carson show. D, I've seen that mm, conservative 54 times. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen it too. <laughs> you know, and he just, he keeps going. He sits, Rodney Dangerfield comes on the show, sits down, doesn't stop. Johnny Carson's just laughing his ass off. He doesn't have to ask a question. I'll tell you, Johnny. If you're ever down, folks, he's just kind of got a mopey feeling, just go listen to a little Rodney Dangerfield. Where was I? Oh, yes. Culture. <laughs> Cancel culture chess. So it starts with Republicans in Georgia pass a bill clearly intended to make it difficult for Democrats to vote, especially black Democrats. So civil rights activists in Georgia respond by calling for corporate boycotts of Georgia. It's a natural consequence, like walking outside when it's 10 degrees below zero without a coat and getting cold. Major League Baseball joins in by announcing it will pull the All-Star game out of Atlanta and will now play it in Denver, Colorado, where there are no attempts that I know of anyway to keep black people from voting. Republicans are outraged. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican, calls it cancel culture, calls for other Republicans to boycott the com companies that are boycotting Georgia. Somehow it's not cancel culture when they try to cancel those Corporate cultures, it's just righteous rage. Over in Texas, Greg Abbott, governor of Texas, another Republican, responds by joining his Republican brothers and sisters in Georgia and pulls out an offer to throw out the first pitch at a Texas Rangers season opener. Texas Rangers being a Major League Baseball team in Texas. I'll leave nothing unexplained. No, you don't. <laughs> I was taught that, D. Never make a reference without explaining the reference. Even if the reference is so obvious to you. It's journalism, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes, the Texas Rangers are a baseball team. Do I have to explain what baseball is? It always kind of bothered me, D. I'm going to tangent with a tangent that the rock writers at the reader got to make all these references. I've mentioned this. To the most obscure rock and roll bands. Well, of course, everybody knows who they are, Ben. <laughs> but if I make a reference to Governor Abbott, uh, Ben, you have to say which state he's from. Anyway, Governor Abbott says he will not bow to cancel culture. He's not going to participate in throwing out the ball at the Texas Rangers opening. Even though I'd like to point out that by refusing to throw out that ball, he is sort of canceling Texas Rangers culture. Just saying. 
By the way, I also want to point out on a tangent, the madness of our COVID response in our country. Baseball games in Chicago, there's social distancing. I think they only let in about 9,000 or so people to Wrigley this weekend to watch the Cubs play the, I can't remember who the Cubs played. Pirates. But they played somebody. Pirates. How did you know? How, how did you know that? Well, I did my research uh, for last week's Oh, What a Week It Was, which you can download right now. ChicagoReader.com and wherever else you download podcasts. Well, that don't download it till after you listen to this show. Then download it. Anyway, yes, they played the Pirates. Took two out of three, as a matter of fact. But they were only allowing about 8,000, 9,000 fans into Wrigley because they what a distance. So people wouldn't get the disease, pass it back and forth. But in Texas, uh-uh, no social distancing rules. They sold every seat. They packed the joint. They had fans cheek to cheek. And they supposedly had masks required. But, folks, if you see the pictures, there's hardly a mask in sight. Everybody's hacking on each other. <coughs> Here, have some COVID with your popcorn <coughs> and your peanuts. I saw people with masks. Okay, here and there, once in a while. And I didn't see one person coughing on someone. <laughs> well, that was because you saw Fake news. Fake news. <laughs> Quick, call Alex Jones. By the way, did you see he lost his kid? Poor Alex Jones. Damn anyway. you, China. <laughs> Alex Jones. Utterly insane, but put that aside. All right, let me read. Let me edit that out. <laughs> Nobody was coughing because it's Texas. Actually, I can't say anybody was coughing. I didn't see anybody coughing. I imagined it. Fake news. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, apparently the Republicans in Texas don't believe that COVID is a real threat. They've canceled the culture of COVID. That's like a pun, the culture COVID, whatever. Anyway, there's another way of looking at it. The smartest, most brilliant scientific minds in the Republican Party have determined that you can't get COVID at a baseball game. Ah, yes, the United States of America. No red states, no blue states, just the United States, united in our war against COVID. Back to cancer culture. I think it's kind of unfair for Republican governors Abbott and Kemp and MAGA in general to complain about Democratic cancel culture when they cancel the culture of everyone they disagree with. The law in Georgia is a great example of this. Now, follow me. The movement to crack down on voting rights in Georgia emerged after the presidential election, which Trump lost and Joe Biden won. But Donnie Trump was such a bad sport that he claimed he won, even though he lost. Not only is there no evidence to support Donnie Trump's claim, but some of his supporters have been sued for defamation for making up phony claims about the so-called election that he lost or won. I'm all mixed up. <laughs> their defense. No reasonable person would believe their claims. So in response to claims that no reasonable person would believe the Republicans of Georgia attempt to make it harder for black people to vote on the grounds that they stole an election that they didn't really steal. It is the ultimate in cancel culture. Oh, you didn't vote the way we wanted you to vote? Well, we'll make it harder for you to vote. That'll teach you for having a mind of your own. And it's not just Republicans in Georgia who are playing this game. Republicans in states all over the country are trying to cancel the culture of people who disagree with them, including, yes, Texas. Governor Abbott, between canceling the culture of the Texas Ranger and canceling the culture of Democratic voters, you just may be the greatest cancel culturer 
Canceler <laughs> in the United States. Come get your medal, sir. I'll tell you what, when it comes to canceling culture, Dems can learn a thing or two from Republicans. We got a great show today, everybody. No one's canceling anyone's culture. We've got a great show. Steve Cohen and Paula Fraley will be here. They're producers of Allen versus Pharaoh. It's a current obsession of mine. Plus, they have two movies. Not one, but two movies up for Oscars. The last producer came on the show, William Horberth, uh, won a Emmy, I think it was, for Queen's Gambit. So I'm just saying, you come on the show, you're going to win something big, right? Dennis, by the way, was uh, the recipient of last year's Producer of the Year Award. That People is don't know that. <laughs> Speaking of fake news that I just made up. Oh, come on. Let him believe that. That was good. Yeah, I, I got just, that award. By the way, Steve Cohen just texted me. No email yet. All right, Steve, we're going to get to you. All right. I sent him that email, D. He's like, where's my email? <laughs> These guests, I tell you what, man. They're very literal-minded, the guests on the Ben Jarowski show. You said 2 o'clock, Ben. We expect it. Anyway, a couple of great flicks uh, that Steve and Paula have produced. I um, We're going to talk a lot about uh, the Woody Allen movie, Allen versus Faro. I'm obsessed with that movie. Um, I've been talking about it nonstop since I watched It's not even a movie. It's a four-part documentary at HBO. I should be uh, clear, clarify things. Uh, so we're reaching out to Steve Cohen and Paula Fraley as we speak. Dr. D has sent uh, the, the, the email. I'm going to text him right now. Oh, there we Just go. Just sent well, This is my favorite part of the new installation of the Venturoski <laughs> show, when you just um, just halt everything and send a text because you're freaking out. Uh, Does Trevor know I do this? No. <laughs> <laughs> Does Steve Colbert do it? Uh-uh. Now there's a new guy. Fox has got a late night show. Did you know this, D? Oh, uh, old Gutfeld. Gutfeld. Yeah, oh, yeah. He's been he's, he's been talking, on for a while. He's been on for a while. Well, he's talking trash. I kind of like it. Ugh, I'm, I'm coming at I, you. I got to say, he's he's the funniest one there. He's actually, you know, doing comedy. So, you know, yeah, he's not bad. Anyway, I'm sure he doesn't get nervous when he sends out the Google invites to his guests. <laughs> Always get a little worried, particularly when people are the baby boomer persuasion. Uh oh. Okay, you're revealing too much. You're revealing too much. <laughs> yes. Anyway, I just want to uh, talk about a couple items in the newspaper that'll probably appear uh, in. Uh, oh, what a week it was. Steve Cohen has joined us. Steve Cohen has joined us. But before we get to Steve Cohen, I just want to say this headline on the Sun Times. Come on, bright one. A little unfair. Democratic ward bosses to be asked to endorse elected school board bills. Lightfoot opposes. Uh, the article gets into the disagreements between Tony Preckwinkle and Lori Lightfoot. We've talked about that many times. I haven't talked about it in a while, Dave. Kind of forgotten about. It was about two years ago right now. In fact, I believe the last time Steve Cohen was on my show was the day after. The day after Lori Lightfoot defeated Tony Preckwinkle. Whoa, man, it all goes around and comes together. There they are. Hi. Steve Cohen and Paul Fraley have joined us. Uh, anyway, uh, I thought it was a little unfair, that headline. It says, Democratic ward bosses to be asked to endorse elected school board bills Lightfoot opposes. She's, of course, against an elected school board because she wants more power for herself. So that's kind of bossy. So I don't know if it's fair to call the other people who are against her bosses. Maybe you should call her boss, too. Just saying fair is fair. 
All right, Steve Cohen and Paula Fraley, thank you so much for being here. You guys are sitting right next to each other, right next to the same microphone. So the rules that applied in April of 2019, when you were last on the show, apply today. Nothing has changed. Share the mic. I always ask the uh, two guests. Share the mic. Nothing has changed, but everything has changed. <laughs> Whoa, I'm getting the bong out on that one. Steve Cohen getting philosophical. I love it when my movie uh, producers get philosophical with me. <laughs> All right. It's about as philosophical as I can get today. So, All right. So I really uh, started the day, uh, Steve and Paula, really wanting to talk about Allen versus Farrell, which is a great documentary, my humble opinion, very provocative. Uh, very thoughtful, uh, it's controversial. It's all the things that you want out of a documentary. We'll get into that. You produce that one. But then I stumbled upon, uh, I didn't actually, this is not really accurate. I stumbled upon it. I watched a concerto is a conversation. One of the two docs that you're up for an Oscar for. And uh, Paul, I'm going to start with you with this one. I had seen it. I didn't realize uh, it was a, a Cohen Fraley production. I had seen it when it first emerged in the New York Times. They dropped it. I was so moved by it. I'm not ashamed to say this, Paula. I cried actual tears as opposed actual to fake tears, tears. Uh, <laughs> when I saw it. And then the second time, there's something so incredibly moving about it. We'll get to Alan versus, I know all my listeners wanted to hear about Alan versus Farrell, but I just do want to talk about what a great flick this is. Mm -hmm. So it's so moving. Uh, Paula, why don't you talk about a little bit about the, the director uh, and the story it tells? Go ahead. Yeah, sure. So uh, we were uh, we were sent a rough edit of Concerto as a Conversation on the heels of developing a partnership with the New York Times and specifically the OpDocs platform. Because at CMP, we were looking to uh, <clears throat> provide grant dollars to filmmakers who have a harder time getting support, namely short uh, doc directors, as well as oftentimes those are first-time directors, and many of them are uh, filmmakers of color who have trouble getting funding in other ways. And so we decided, we reached out to the New York Times and OpDocs, and um, developed this partnership and Concerto was the first project um, that we saw. And immediately we fell in love with it. Ben Proudfoot and Chris Bowers, who are the co-directors, uh, have created a very special and intimate portrait of a relationship between a grandfather and a grandson that is compelling in and of itself to watch and to listen. But then as you hear the story of the grandfather, what you come to experience from the inside out is what it felt like to be growing up in the Jim Crow South. And as his grandfather seeks to, to find his way out of it, all of the hardships and all of the trouble that he experiences in that process when he gets to LA and he uh, wants to open his first dry cleaners. And it gives you, it's a wonderful piece for us because you are drawn in by the intimacy of the relationship and how honest and connected these two people are. And then what you realize is that you're also learning a bit from the inside out of what what that was like, what it's like to experience that kind of racism. It makes you think about how not much has changed. And so it's a social cause film, but it's that is buried inside of an absolutely beautiful and compelling story that I 
dare anyone to watch and not shed a few tears. Steve, were you crying as well when you saw it? Like a baby. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm easy. I'm not hardened and wisened like you are. Down like you, that says something. No, Paula really kind of capsulized how, how, uh, how we felt when we saw it. Um, it, you know, it set a high bar for this partnership that we established with the New York Times, uh, and 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 we're pleased about that. But um, you know, it it in in eleven or twelve short minutes, it has done everything that a that a documentary, that a film, that that you know, uh, visual drama um, uh, should should do, and. Uh, it's really a testament to the, to the characters, to the filmmaker, and to the message. Uh, Chris Bauer is one of the uh, directors of the movie, uh, is an accomplished musician. So the movie tells a story about how he has created a concerto, and he's sitting down and discussing it with his grandfather, who is clearly not a musician. Uh, at the end of the movie, the grandfather sings. And I'm just putting it out there. I sing about it as well as that grandfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, clearly, Chris did not get his uh, talent uh, passed on from his grandfather. But what is so moving is, uh, as Paula was saying, Steve, the grandfather is telling his story and the difficulties that he faced uh, coming up in Jim Crow era South and Florida, hitchhiking across the country, winding up in California, making a go for himself as a businessman, pulling himself up by his bootstraps, if you will. Uh, but he, he's not angry about it. Mm-hmm. He's not like uh, bossy about it or arrogant about it or contemptuous about it. He's very generous toward his grandson and appreciative of his grandson for following his own talents, very supportive. I, I, that's what I think moved me is, uh, Steve was just like the connection between the grandfather, uh, and the grandson and the generosity with which the grandfather looked at his grandson and his, that unconventional life. I mean, he was a businessman hard, you know, you got to put your application in for a loan. You got to fill in the, you know, dot the I's cross the T, get your lawyers to look at it. And yet he had like a compassion uh, to accept what his son had done with his life. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think the, you know, the movie, of course, is the, is the story of of a, a grandson who stands on the shoulders of a gra- of a grandfather. But it's also the story of you know the migration from the Jim Crow South to to L.A. and the the um, you know the high profile life of a of a of the a, a, an African-American conductor of the Philharmonic. So it, it really is a story about America in a way. It's a story about the migration of a people. And it's the story about, you know, fortitude and resi- and and, resi- and um, resilience. Mm-hmm. Perseverance. And, and perseverance. you know, incidentally, Chris Bowers got an Academy Award as a um, composer for Green Book. Yeah. Uh, so talk about, you know, traveling far um, um, and clearly having such a deep uh, love for his grandfather and all that he has done to support him over the years. It's really, really is a a portrait of America, as Steve was saying. And what is incredible is it does all of this in 11 minutes (laughs) and makes you cry. Yeah. Yeah. Cry Cry 11 minutes. Proud tears. Yeah. Uh, there's no reason to be uh, uh, 
embarrassed by tears. I cry all the time. Uh, <laughs> my beloved Bulls, even when a Bulls lose a heartbreaker. Well, I don't cry anymore. But when I was young, Steve, uh, I urge everybody to check it out. You could watch it. Go to the New York Times uh Op doc, did I or did I the uh, dyslexia? Op docs, op docs okay. yeah. Uh, the dyslexia didn't kick in. Op docs, uh, and you can find it in the New York Times. I stumbled upon it, like I said, months ago and loved it. And uh, I hope you guys win. Uh, I hope you win the Oscar for it. And uh, now the other flick that you're oh, yeah, before we do, we, I just want to say there will be more of these uh, in the partnership between CMP and the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, we are already looking at others. Um, we have plans for this to be a platform, as Paula said, where we can uh, help give voice to to filmmakers who would otherwise not be able to have it. Well, how many people uh, watched it? How many downloads? Do you have any sense of how many downloads there were? You know, I don't. But clearly the Optox platform is pretty much the number one place for people to see short sure. documentaries. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are of the highest quality because it's the Times. Uh, they're mentored and coached um, by the staff there. And so it's very, very high level storytelling. It's really a wonderful platform. Yeah. The other, the, the other uh, movie is Crip Camp and a confession here. I've not yet seen it. I think Steve, you urged me to see it the last time I talked to you and I have uh, still haven't seen it. It's on Netflix. Uh, so I can see it tonight. If I get my act together, I'll talk a little <laughs> bit about that, Steve. Well, Netflix, it's, it's interesting, like, uh, like Concerto, um, it was a movie that we got into very early on before they had any, any real money, actually. We were the first uh, grant to them, and one of the reasons, it, the granting we did to Crip Camp was kind of a forerunner to what we are now doing on the, on the short stage with, um, uh, with OpDocs. It was to, uh, we we were we are we were giving money to films or filmmakers to help sort of get them to see the light of day. And in Crip Camp, they came to us um, with uh, with the idea of of making a movie that sounded incredible to us. Uh, that was going to be both a a um, you know a a sentimental journey down uh, the, through the '60s in this. Uh, in this camp that um, you know brought together uh, disabled um, young young people who had no opportunity to be together in any other way um, for a summer during Woodstock, <laughs> during the same year that Woodstock was taking place, um, and at the same time it was also a journey through the movement to, for disability rights because so many of the young people who were campers at this. Uh, at this incredible once in a lifetime camp went on to become the activists and the leaders and the, uh, and the pioneers mm-hmm. for dis- disability rights. Mm-hmm. And so that of course appealed to us and we decided to give them a grant, which enabled um, the film team to then go out and get um, the rest of the dollars they needed to be able to make what turned out to be an incredibly entertaining, um, poignant, uh, funny, um, yeah. historical, um, dramatic, uh, documentary about, uh, about those times. And by the way, ultimately it was, um, the Obama's production team, uh, a higher ground, which came in and provided the necessary production funding, uh, to finish the film. And because of their, their deal with Netflix, it ended up on Netflix 
after it uh, premiered at Sundance in 2019 mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, incredible reviews. So um, we are, you know, just so proud of it. <laughs> That's all the way. Yeah. It is I mean, it really say. feels like a coming of age in the seventies story uh, that it just so happens that the characters are differently abled. Yeah. Um, it has all of the feel of Woodstock. Certainly they utilize a lot of the music mm -hmm. uh, in the soundtrack mm -hmm. and they have at its core a uh, video from the time inside the camp that Jim, one of the co-directors of Crip Camp, Jim Lebrecht, <clears throat> Jim Lebrecht, he was along with being a camp resident. He was also the videographer. So he had hours and hours of tape of uh, these fantastic interviews that he was doing with all of the other um, camp kids. And it really gives you this peek inside of this world where the counselors had just decided that, that this is just summer camp. This isn't a disabled summer camp. This is summer camp. And these kids are capable and uh you know, of doing everything and anything that any other kid who goes to summer yeah. camp does. And so what you realize is that all of these people in their formative years were given the experience of not being treated differently and being supported in whatever decisions they wanted to make, ideas that they had. And you see that because they got this experience when they were 14, 15, 16 years old, they then go on later in life to become, as Steve said, the pioneers of the ADA uh, movement. And that leads to a sit-in in San Francisco uh, in the early 80s, yeah, I think. Yeah, which uh, basically that is remarkable. Um, and so... You know, it's, again, this film that tells this heroic story about this movement um, and gives you the feel and flavor of being in that time, 70s, 80s, 90s, getting to, it was yeah. George Bush Sr. Mm -hmm. who signed the law, mm -hmm. so we're talking. Yeah. 19, uh, I don't know, 84. Yeah, the ADA. I think it's later. Uh, no, that would have been, uh, if it was 1984, this is my mastery of American politics, the President of the United States would have been one, Ronald yeah, Reagan. Right, uh, that's right. If it was, uh, uh, nice job, Ben. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, no wonder I host this show. George Sr. is early 90s? Tell yes. Us. Yeah, that's right, 1990. You're right. So that's it's right. this, but the film, again, I just want to try and communicate that it's this heroic story of a movement, and you fall in love with these people when they're young and you cheer for them as they're doing all of this sit-in and marching and you know it feels but you also are cheering them on as they're having their first relationships oh, yeah. at camp and they're having talking about crabs and talking about crabs <laughs> and they're Getting having high. yeah <laughs> all the things that camp the kids did so it's in this incredible 70s. mix of the yeah. of this you know just incredible historical um uh video that was being done nobody expected back then when yeah. they were shooting it that you there was going to be a movie 40 years later you laugh uh, with them it's fun i yeah. mean i guess that's what i'm trying to say is like yes it's a film about the disability rights movement it's but it's not but it's about it's, these kids it's <laughs> about these kids and yeah. it is really enjoyable 
Are you so I'm definitely going to watch it uh, by the by Oscar time. I will have watched. I just want to announce to our listeners: Sergio Mims will be doing a special Oscar show. We're going through all the nominations with Sergio Mims and the Black Harvest Film Festival, uh, and so I'm looking forward to that. I got a, a lot of catching up to do. Uh, if, I haven't even seen Crip Camp yet. Uh, by the way, uh, excuse my utter ignorance, Steve, but this year's Oscars, will there actually be people gathering uh, in L.A.? Or how's it going to be this year? Uh, for yeah, the they, they are having in person. Um, it's going to be quite different from the past. Um, they're limiting the number of people. Uh, us, the uh, invitations are only given to the filmmakers and their families, I think. I don't think. Yeah, it's, it's the nominees. You know, the nominees and, and their families. A limited number yeah. of guests. They're actually going to have two different venues. Uh, there's the Dolby Theater where it typically is, and then they're going to have a, a second theater uh, where people will be. There obviously will not be the parties and the after parties. I'm not even sure if there is a red carpet. They've been kind of vague about the yeah. red carpet. Yeah. Are you two going to go to L.A. this year? No. Um, in our last, the last time we had a movie uh, up for an Oscar, which was Icarus, uh, we did go and we uh, we partied with Elton John <laughs> at, uh, at his party and we had a great time. Uh, this time we decided both because of the um, the situation and the, and the, and the restrictions um, and the optics that it was inappropriate to be at the Oscars for, uh, you know, even in LA for, for the Oscars. We'll go next year yeah. when we have next another. Year. Well, clearly you have a different point of view than uh, the people who run the state of Texas, uh, which yeah. are the baseball season and te- with the Texas Rangers by allowing absolutely everybody to jam into a stadium. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, yeah. Political yeah. side, 40,000 fans. Unbelievable. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on to uh, the Woodman, the Woody Allen movie or documentary, or I shouldn't say the Woody Allen documentary. Let me rewind the tape. Uh, the story, uh, Allen uh, versus Farrell. I found it, as I said at the outset, um, Paula, fascinating, provocative, disturbing. And I'm going to say this up front. I'm going to make this acknowledgement. I've already talked about this on the show once before, so I'm acknowledging something I already acknowledged. I was a huge Woody Allen fan, Paula. Yes, I was. Mm-hmm. I was a huge Woody Allen fan. I'm older than you, so this goes back to, like, 1969. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, What's Up, Tiger Lily? It was, like, 67. I can't remember when What's Up, Tiger Lily. I thought, oh, my God, this kid's so funny. What's Up, Tiger <laughs> Lily, man? Oh. Anyway. I was a Woody Allen fan throughout the set. Manhattan, rock my boat. Got to tell you, Paula, not a big <laughs> fan of Manhattan. Even then, I knew there's something weird about a movie in which a 47-year-old filmmaker is coming on to like a 16-year-old girl. And everybody's pretending like, oh, because the opening scene is so cool with the Gershwins and the, the, yeah. the shadows of New York City. He's not a pervert, Okay. Right. So I've had this argument with people who love Birth of a Nation. Ben, yes, I know. It, 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 uh, glorifies the KKK, but oh my God, the film angles or, uh, you know, the, 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 the Nazi documentary about the 1936 Olympics. Yeah, Ben, I know it's Hitler, but good God, the camera angles. Uh, all right. So that's my confession. Uh, how did you come at this, uh, Paula, in terms of your attitude toward Woody Allen? Go ahead. Well, I can say that. I mean, from a filmmaking standpoint, I have I have not been a diehard Woody Allen fan, so it was not as difficult for me to part ways with his movies. I'll be honest. It's not that I dislike them. I just 
did not have the kind of reverence for them that other people I know did. So putting that aside, um, what I, I find just astounding about this series is as a woman growing up in the, the this time that we have only in the last five years changed the culture enough where this story could actually come and see the light of day and be given kind of an open public airing in the way that it has been in this series. You know, he was able to do what he did because people looked the other way. They believed him over his daughter, over his wife, um, his uh, movies. You know, he was given carte blanche because he was this New York filmmaker. And as a woman growing up in that time, I that this series for me, along with everything else that makes it powerful, for me personally, it underscores the fact that it has only been in the last five years where people like Harvey Weinstein and Woody Allen and Kevin Spacey and, you, you know, name it on all your fingers and all your toes and go back again, that it's finally that the women, and in this case, an eight-year-old girl is being believed, is being listened to, who is, is I just cannot, there aren't words to describe that feeling, that thank God we are finally here, thank God for my daughter, that she won't grow up in that world. But good Lord, it has only been five years. It's crazy, you know? So it's easy for me to let go of Woody Allen and his films, but I am really grateful for one thing. People watch this series because of him and what they came to find out about was incest. And they finally had a vehicle by which they can talk about it. And that's why we got involved with this series. It has nothing to do with Woody Allen, except thank you very much. You gave us a vehicle by which we can talk about something that we need to talk about as a, as a culture mm-hmm. so that it can stop, so that the cycle of abuse can stop. Um, yeah, I think it's I'm very, very proud of our uh, role in helping that series come to light. Steve? I, I think you know, <laughs> not much more to say after Well, that. I don't. Uh, I, listen, when Paula says she was not much of a Woody Allen fan, I take it. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying she's revising history. I'm, I don't know. So I'm just going to take it. But I do not believe in a million years that a kid who grew up in the New York area named Steve Cohen <laughs> in the not. 70s was not a huge fan of Woody <laughs> Allen. Steve well, Cohen deny that yesterday. No, I, I, you, I, I can't because you're right. Um, I actually thought that Annie Hall was one of the great movies, you know, made. Um, and I thought, you know, I had tremendous i had great laughs with movies like sleeper and and uh um bananas and you name you can name it um and then i thought you know some of his movies after um um uh uh, uh annie hall were were you know both interesting and and entertaining um and funny and poignant um but 
Um, I do have a hard time separating the filmmaker from the, from the films. Um, and that's because, you know, there's so many things that I think the, the, that the series kind of brings out, not the least of which is how much the movies that we watched and loved were only affirming and underscoring, you know, some really unhealthy um, perceptions and cultural um, acceptances um, that we all had, you know, and, and it's not just Woody Allen. I mean, it's, you know, but in this instance, I mean, how many times, you know, did men watch Manhattan and, and, and not be disturbed by the idea of a 47 year old filmmaker and an underage um, um, girl, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, girl, and the relationship and, inst- and, 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 and what it does. And there was almost sort of a, a cultural pride that the movie, you know, mm-hmm. kind of underscored that, Oh, look how open we can be that we can accept that kind of a relationship. That's our notion of open-mindedness. Um, and, you know, you can sort of follow that through in many of, of his movies because really he was sort of giving us a tell for, for, for many, mm-hmm. many years and many, many movies that this was his, his dysfunction. Yes. Um, but if we only see it as, you know, his dysfunction, as opposed to a cultural dysfunction in which men are always believed, men are always given this, the, the, the benefit of the doubt, um, the girls are not believed, and more importantly, that we have a system of justice where, um, you know, defendants can literally put forward, um, you know, a make the, make the wife, make the mother into the bad guy and certainly that happened then you know that is a cultural dysfunction which i think the series is has been able to kind of reveal um and that to me is is probably the most profound part of it because once you can start to reveal it then people can start to see something about themselves and what they were willing to accept and not willing to accept what are the the things that I appreciated the most about the documentary, uh, Paula, as I'm thinking, listening to you guys talk, and I'm saying this, I'm let me put this in the proper context. I'm a political junkie, mm-hmm. uh, as Steve knows, and uh, I'm obsessed with Chicago politics. And I've watched for years and years the machinations which, which powerful people in Chicago use the, mini, the media mm-hmm. manipulate our view of what's going on to win over the day. I've seen it happen. You know, Chicagoans just go along like this, the sheep that they are. They just follow whichever direction they're being led. It happens all the time. These filmmakers do a great job, in my humble opinion, Paula, of showing how the Woody Allen. And I never would have given him credit because I believed like like the, the caricature that he his persona in his movies is this nebbish. I'm a okay, shy. I don't get him. This guy's a power player. Oh yeah, oh, Rob yeah. Emanuel and Mayor Daly could learn a thing or two from the Woodman <laughs> about how do you control the media, judges, yeah. politicians. Yeah. I mean, I thought the filmmakers did a great job of pointing that out, Paula. What do you think? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And I think that in some, like in hindsight, you just have to say to yourself, um, "Yeah, he's a master storyteller, right?" So all he did was to do what he has been lauded for and, you know, that his whole career has been about. 
But again, I don't think we were as sophisticated of viewers back then to really truly understand all of the machinations of what was going on behind the scenes in any area of our lives. And especially in that case, I think they really do a great job of showing how deep those tentacles went into all the way down to the department inside of uh, New York uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Health and Human Services is incredible. It's startling um, to see that. And of course, now we see it through the lens of people like Jeffrey Epstein, Donald Trump, uh, you know, the story, Weinstein, story after story after story of powerful men, frankly, having tentacles deep into a multitude of areas and can manipulate uh, the rest of the public's understanding of what's yeah. true and, and what's false. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and a lot of it is just you know, like your political leanings sort of dictate your view of something. So, for instance, yes. uh, you mentioned Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is accused of rape right now. There's a court case, a defamation lawsuit. E. Jean Carroll, let's not forget her. She's filed a suit in New York City. Donald Trump mm-hmm. is facing a very serious charge, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and what he, he took MAGA, a few tweets uh, diminishing uh, E. Jean Carroll on, uh, from Donald Trump was enough to convince 40% of America that subscribes to MAGA that he, Donald Trump was right and she was wrong. And okay. similarly, the Woodman, you know, people love his movies. All it took was a press release here or there, you know, going on 60 Minutes. And, mm-hmm. oh, I like Woody mm-hmm. Allen. I don't want to have to give up my Woody Allen movies. So I'm and sticking with it. And think about this. He did it to his eight-year-old daughter. I mean, yeah. you know, you can say he was doing it to Mia, but he was doing it to his eight-year-old daughter. I mean, that is why... I could never watch another Woody yeah. Allen movie. This isn't just, frankly, even Harvey Weinstein. It's not at that level. This is this is a different kind of evil, if you ask me, in terms of and how he's been able to rewrite the narrative in his own head. Um, he can't ever escape, even at the ripe old age of 80, what he did to his eight-year-old daughter and how that all almost destroyed her life. Yeah. You know, I just, I don't understand a person who can't, who can live with themselves and never ever, um, and basically use all of their power, not to protect her, not to protect the rest of his children, but to protect himself. Yeah. I I mean, I, you know, (laughs) there, it is, it is an unfathomable, um, an unfathomable kind of situation for me. I just simply can't understand that as a father, um, as a father to a daughter, I, I simply can't understand how somebody g- goes there. Um, but I do want to say that I think that if, if people watch the, the series and they come away with a better understanding of Woody Allen and, and what makes him tick, that's great. But if they don't go beyond that, I think mm-hmm. they're missing what this series is really all about because I think it is um, the message of it. And the theme of it is that we have to really reevaluate. Um, you know, we have to reevaluate um, what we're willing to accept as art, <laughs> as, you know, media, um, just like, you know, you were saying, um, we no longer can accept 
a movie that has, you know, overtly racist mm. messages and themes anymore that we used to be able to accept in this kind of separated way. Well, I think that's true now in the arena of, of, um, you know, gender and, 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 um, and, and in, in issues of, 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 of the way relationships are shown. Um, we just can't accept those anymore. You know, uh, it's uh, I would say this. Uh, one of the another great things that uh, the documentary does uh, is show the complicity of Hollywood uh, with Woody yeah. Allen, mm-hmm. uh, how they either ignored it or looked for whatever shred of evidence they could find to support Woody Allen. And well, that, you know, that, so look at this. It's evidence. It's like 10 yeah. things on one side and one thing on yeah. the other side. They're, oh, yeah. Let's not forget this Yale report. Did you read about the Yale report, which yeah. nobody would know about unless some publicist fed you? Uh, but, uh, and so then that from there, it's like, well, you know, they showed footage in the movie or in the doc, I should stop calling it a movie. Uh, the documentary, uh, Paula, we're, we're, we're like famous. It's, a movie. it's just that it's a series. It's not <laughs> documentaries and movies, but this happens to be a docu-series. I sit corrected by Steve Cohen. <laughs> by the way, before he was a producer, he was a lawyer. Vicious on the cross-examination. Um, but you're right. I'm going to call it a movie for now on. I just, I don't know. It's because it's on HBO. I'm a hard time. Anyway. Uh, but then they show these actresses, uh, you know, when they're, they're like defending Woody Allen and then they go, well, who knows? I mean, you know, she says this, he says that. And uh, we're all kind of complicit in our, yeah. some more than others. I mean, look, right now there's a fight going on to get corporations to, you know, to come out opposing the what, what Georgia did in the legislature and saying we no longer can be, you know, just sit by and, and watch this. But, you know, they they accepted it when the laws were, were being passed. Right. And now, you know, but at least they're coming out now. <laughs> and And that's kind of what I think, movies or series and documentaries will do they they will reveal hopefully and they will make people rethink what they thought before and then rethinking can lead to action now yeah. when talk a little bit about uh what motivated you to get involved uh in in this project and uh well i'll start with you paul and then steve you can weigh in uh, obviously they came to you at a certain point. I read, I read this in the newspaper and it was very hush hush. Uh, mm-hmm. they were putting this project together. They didn't want the whole world to know about it. What drew you to it? What motivated you to get involved? Uh, as a well, producer? so we have been involved with other films by, uh, Amy Ziering and Kirby Dick, uh, inclu- including on the record, which was also on HBO the year prior, uh, uh, had the unfortunate premiere date of, I think, March 16th last year. And so to a good extent, this incredibly powerful story that tells the sexual assault by Russell Simmons uh, uses that story as a way to look at uh, sexual assault, particularly uh, through the lens of African-American women and how that additional layer of of fear that many of them feel and coming and speaking out about uh, uh, assault that they've experienced um, by uh, members of their community. It's a really fantastic film. Uh, And so Amy and Kirby are fantastic journalists. Um, They 
have a standard, a journalistic standard that rivals any of the best uh, in the field. And so we know them to be filmmakers who highly, highly research, who hold by the highest journalistic standards of having at least two confirmations of anything that's included, uh, two independent sources for information that's included in their docs. And so they came to us after On the Record uh, and told us that in the process of uh, working on that film, which actually started right when Weinstein came, when all of the Weinstein stuff broke, it started originally as a series looking at sexual assault in Hollywood. And of course they have done uh, the hunting ground, which looked at it on college campuses, the invisible war, looking at it in the military. And now they were going to look at it through Hollywood and high level assault. And through the process of their interviewing and research, they told us that they had come upon a very, very high level uh uh, individual, a person connected to some of the highest levels of Hollywood, and that her story was different from the others because uh, it uh, was about sexual assault within a family. Um, and they couldn't tell us much more than that initially. They told us that they knew what they had was something powerful, that it was going to be a tool that would allow people to talk about this taboo subject through the lens of this incredible story. They knew it was highly volatile and they would have to keep it private from everybody, including the initial supporters. And we said, we're in, <laughs> we're in and we want to support in whatever way and to whatever extent we can. Wait, hold on, let me make sure I understand this. You didn't even know this, who the literal subject was. No, no. When we, we, we when we first okay. committed, we did not know. Very wow. shortly thereafter, mm. we were told, but we were told, yeah. And it had to do with the level at which we committed to support the film um, as producers. We they they told us who it was, but that we were sworn to secrecy. The project had a, had a different name, a code name, and basically, mom's the word until we were told that it was, you know, it had found its home and that it was going to have a premiere. Um, we had updates with the filmmakers along the way, but we were not allowed to share that with anybody. Right. Excuse my ignorance, Steve, but why swearing you to secrecy? I mean, what, the main what fear was about? that if, if it somehow the production got leaked, that Woody Allen and his lawyers would do everything they could to frustrate the uh, the distribution of the movie. Um, and it's not an unfounded problem because actually with On the Record, exactly that happened. Um, uh, in the beginning with On the Record, um, Oprah was one of the executive producers and she had brought it to Apple um, and they had decided they would they were going to be the distributor of the, of the, of the movie. That too, by the way, was supposed to be a, a, a series uh, with, the, with the, on the record about Russell Simmons being the first of a, of a five part series that was going to air on an Apple TV. Um, and Oprah was going to be an executive producer. But once it got known what was happening, the music community puts, and especially uh, black performers, uh, black male performers, uh, we're putting so much pressure on Oprah um, about being involved in it that she ultimately pulled out. Mm. And that actually um, <laughs> uh, quashed the deal with Apple. 
So when it, when the movie was premiering at Sundance and all this happened just a few weeks before the Sundance premiere, when the movie premiered at Sundance, um, we had no idea whether or not the movie would actually get a, get a place to be seen. Um, now, ultimately, it didn't. It, it, it got, you know, incredible reviews. But that um, experience even made it harder for um, not only for us, but certainly for Amy and Kirby, uh, the filmmakers, um, to, to make uh, uh, the Woody Allen series. And um, so we had to put in extra special. And there's, there's no doubt if, if it had been known what the what the the series was about, there would have been a huge attempt mm-hmm. pushed back to try and squelch it. Hmm. Well, one of the, uh, the key elements of Ronan Farrow, Ronan Farrow of Mia Farrow's son, uh, he's a journalist in his own right. And he wrote, uh, he, for the New Yorker, uh, wrote several investigations into Harvey Weinstein and wrote a book of, ultimately about it. But one of the tales he tells in that book is the length to which Harvey Weinstein tried to use his clout uh, to have the project killed and successfully, in my humble opinion, yeah. and knew, where, when uh, Ronan Farrow was at NBC, uh, they kept quashed it. And all these journalists are bending over backwards to try to undercut the validity of what Ronan Farrow came up with. It's it's so disgusting when you, as a guy who spent my whole career in this, to watch people just make up fluff, Paula, you know, just make it up, Steve, to justify their cowardice. Do you follow what I'm saying? They come up with some, just be honest, go, look, we're getting a lot of pressure. Uh, This guy's got a lot of clout. Great piece, but I don't want to handle the clout. But no, what they do is they come up, well, you know, you didn't really talk to Billy Bob and we get Billy Bob in there. And then you get Billy Bob in there. Well, you didn't talk to Susie Q. Can you get Susie Q in there? And the next thing you know, another, well, you know, I I don't know. It's not that interesting anyway. You know what I'm saying, Paula? So I can see what they're worried about. Although on the other hand, now I'm thinking about it. Uh, they had reached out to Woody Allen to ask if he wanted to participate. So they I did. can't believe, I can't believe it was completely in the dark. He wasn't. Well, he wasn't until the very end. He was until they, the very end. They gave him, I think six weeks. Yeah. Well, I mean, plenty which, of time. Right. If plenty you of time. Knew but a I'm four saying, part series was right. coming out. Right. You, you'd probably yeah. find a moment yeah. to be at least to have a phone call right. yeah. about it. Nothing. The, the important thing was during the production when the interviews were being done, when they were, that's where, you know, if they had tried to, if it had been cut off at that stage, we would never have seen the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I urge everybody to check it out. Uh, I mean, it, it is disturbing uh, material. So if, if you, they, and they put that up there, this is disturbing material. It, mm-hmm. it deals with accusations of incest, uh, seven-year-old a girl, I think she was seven at the time. So mm-hmm. it is disturbing. So I, pu- I I put that out there. If you don't want to deal with it, I, I can understand. But if you want if you want to get a sense of the depravity of one family and uh, one powerful man and how he exercises and how power is exercised in our country, uh, well, and can I just add how power is exercised inside a family? I mean, he just. Did that, and that's really ultimately what the series is about. Yeah, and by the way, the, the filming is incredible too. I mean, the way oh, the movie yeah. was made, it it plays like a thriller. Yes, it yes. plays like a detective thriller. By the way, and what a uh, uh, contrasts 
will uh, close where we started. You got Chris Bauer's 13 minute documentary, which talks about this, the amazing generosity of warmth and compassion of his grandfather in passing on to his grandson and enabling his grandson to achieve his dreams. And then you got this like twisted, weird, whacked out situation where this bully is like playing one family member against another family. And there's this incredible moment in the movie. I don't know where she got this tape. Yeah, uh, Paula. Where they, they they were each taping each other. I guess Mia Farrow was taping mm-hmm. Woody Allen, and Woody Allen was taping Mia Farrow. They, while all this contentiousness was being played out in the press, and they're having this conversation where they're clearly trying to ki- get the other one to confess something on tape that they shouldn't confess. And then somehow or other, they get Woodman is talking. He goes, "Hold on, I got to put you on hold. I got another call coming in." He puts her on hold. He just tells her, "I wasn't taping you." And he, the person uh-huh. goes, uh, "Can you talk?" He goes, "No, I'm on the phone with Mia. I'm taping the conversation." Like, yeah, yeah. How, yeah. how did she get that? Yeah, like, you, you, yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's a little bit of old-fashioned caller ID that didn't work. <laughs> yes, which certainly did not work. <laughs> I guess he was selling the truth when he didn't understand uh, when he said he didn't understand how technology works. Uh, anyway, um, I urge everybody to check it out. Uh, it's a great flick a great movie. Story. And um, now, would that be eligible, uh, Steve, for an Emmy because it's on HBO? Would he be Emmy eligible? Yeah, um, it'll not not this year. Yes, uh, in the next series. Yeah. But I don't know actually what the situation is you know the oscars are so weird because so many of the movies that that were <laughs> that are up um have never played in the theater right but this is a series so it could right be, right this would be an nominee yeah yes but i remember I, the last time in the show you explained uh you took the deep dive in explaining what you had to do with the documentary to get it oscar eligible uh, our listeners were taking notes, and there was an exam uh, two weeks after the show, and most of them passed, Steve. Uh, but I guess all the the rules are out the window for this year. We're in the middle of a pandemic, so is, am yeah. I correct yeah. in that? Well, the rules are in place. We just don't know how they're going to be applied. All right, yes. It's a weird, you know, it's just a weird time. And finally, uh, also the last time you were in the show, you were promoting your great uh, film festival that you had at the Davis. Yeah. Yeah, yes. And uh, what's the future of that? It's happening. Uh, it's going to be in person, both in the- in a theater at the Davis Theater, as well as a drive-in, uh, June 17th to the 21st. We uh, are very hopeful with the vaccination plan um, that many, many, many more people will be vaccinated and will be looking for movies Um to experience in person, socially distanced. Um, we're planning outdoor venues. Yes. And uh, so we're very excited to have our first in-person convening event yeah. this June 17th to the 21st. And we, we've got seven of the 10 documentaries selected. I can't tell you what any of them are yet. We have to come back for that. <laughs> uh, but we're, we, yeah, it's going to have its own special Doc 10 spin, people should definitely mark their calendars for it. And we'll be get, you know, getting more info out um, very soon. We're, we're actually hoping that, you know, given the timing, um, that it, it, it may be able to be one of those events that people can actually sort of 
come out of their shell for yeah. <laughs> their, their, the year long chair. Yeah, the bunker. <laughs> so we're 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 planning it with that in mind that people will really be able to use it in a in a really um, you know personally powerful way for themselves as well as to see great great documentaries well i'm looking forward to it uh and along with the black harvest film festival one of my favorite uh, festivals uh mm-hmm. in chicago and uh, black harvest was canceled last year yeah uh, or well it was virtual um but uh hey you should you know what here i have your solution just hold it uh in texas they'll let you do anything you want with it. That's right. you can have it at texas ranger stadium and the- well, I, I gotta tell you I, I i just came back i spent a week in nashville uh, and uh, it was quite a crazy trip being walking into music venues. Now I'm fully vaccinated, um, but walking into a music venue for the first time in a year, um, and uh, they were, you know, sparsely attended, and it was not. They were not doing what Texas is doing, but being in a place where, in effect, things are reopening rapidly, it's a, it's a, it's a weird feeling. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Steve and Paula, thank you very much for taking the time and come and talk to me. I'm, I'm rooting for you. I rooted for you last time and I'm, uh, really, really rooting for a concerto is a conversation. I love right. that movie so much. Uh, and You're great right, work. Like it. It's, it's a great movie. It really is. Are you two stay safe and sound and bring you back to promote, uh, your film festival in June. All right. Well, we'll be thank back in June. I hope. Yep. Good. Okay. Yeah. All, All right. right. Very good. Thank take you. care you guys. Stephen Paul, I, um, great flick, everybody. Uh, the Woody Allen movie, Allen uh, versus Pharaoh. Again, it's provocative and upsetting subject material, but uh, it's really eye-opening stuff. Uh, Dee, I'm going to head out the door now, but I just want to remind folks, we have a first Tuesday tonight. It's 6.30, and uh, Maya and I will have as our guest Ann Jeanette Young and Shapiro Wells. Uh, I've written about it for the reader. Maya was on the show last week talking about it. Should be a very interesting conversation talking about policing in the city of Chicago, criminal justice, the politics of policing, uh, what happens when your story in the case of Anjanette Young becomes front page news. Anjanette Young, to remind everybody, was the woman on the west side whose home was uh, busted into by police with a no-knock warrant. She was naked at the time, just having stepped out of the shower. They handcuffed her, they ransacked her home, and then they realized, uh oh. They had the wrong address. Uh, very upsetting uh, story, and uh, it's still playing out. There's still a lawsuit. So, Anjanette Young, Shapiro Wells, 6 30. Uh, it's $5 uh, to watch. Hey, it's a good cause. Help out the hideout. Steve was just talking about how clubs have been uh, hammered hard by the pandemic, and the hideout is uh, no different. So, uh, Maya and I are helping out the hideout. And Anjanette Young and Shapiro Wells will be our guests. D, let me get that information. There's a, what is it? Noonchorus.com. There you I did go. That out of memory. I there did that go. out of memory. Noonchorus.com. And you uh, you do a Google search and that, boom, you're right there at the hideout. Yeah. It worked for me. It could work for oh you. Oh, my God. It worked for him, guys. It could <laughs> definitely work. For, just Google Noon Chorus Hideout. Uh, first Tuesdays, Maya Ben. Uh, you know how to Google stuff, guys. So go check it out. It's tonight, everybody. So yeah, it'll be a it'll be a real cool show. Yeah, six thirty tonight. Uh, anyway, I want to thank uh, Steve and Paula. Great job as always. And um, this is their third time of the show. So thank you very much for coming on the show. And of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride, joy, and Alton, Illinois. Without whom this show would be possible. Uh, Stephen Paul can tell you back home in Alton, they call him Dr. Doobie. <laughs> Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody.
And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more. ChicagoReader.com and wherever else you download podcasts. That is correct. That is correct. 